Where does yesterday's future, which is already here, ready here, ready here, ready here, meet today's future, which is about to happen, and tomorrow's future, which could be just minutes away? Welcome to Technology Revolution, the future of now. Where host Bonnie D. Graham asks savvy futurists for their predictions about the tech driven trends that are shaping our future right now. Here's your host who will take us into the future of now, Bonnie D. Graham. <laughs> welcome, 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 welcome. Bonnie in the house, happy to be here. And we're not necessarily talking about tech driven trends, we're talking about women in STEM driven trends, which has a background in tech, the idea of STEM, and these ladies do. So let's get started. By the way, our topic today is the future of professional women, creativity and technology, the impossible dream. Some people may say yes. So I have four buzz quotes. I found so many interesting topics online about what we're talking about today. So quote number one, Albert Einstein. This is a real Einstein quote, by the way. I use quote investigator. This is one of the ones he really said. The greatest scientists are always artists as well. Just let that sink in. You can use that anywhere. Quote number two. This is an article in news.microsoft.com. At first glance, the words science and creativity might not seem like natural companions. Many view the precision, critical thinking, and data-driven methods applied in the fields of science, technology, engineering, and math, STAM, that's STEM, at being at odds with creative instincts. But in fact, the greatest scientific discoveries in history were born out of creative curiosity. On my panel, I want you to remember that creative curiosity and a desire to do things differently. And you all have been doing that. Buzz number three is from an, uh, an author named Shweta Agarwala on her LinkedIn page, LinkedIn slash Pulse and et cetera, et cetera. She says, I want to tell the young generation that the fields of STEM are innovative, inventive, and visionary, all of which takes a lot of creativity and to think out loud on how we can engage more women in STEM. So we've got another good quote and one more. An author named Alison Escalante in Forbes wrote the following, what makes someone a creative person? For most of us, the first thing that comes to mind is the arts. How many of us use the term creative to describe a person who's good at math? Well, I do, but that's me talking. But new research calls that perception into question, finding the same amazing human creativity is at the root of both. So we have four professional women. They're creative. They're writers. They're novelists. We have Leslie Wheeler. All you wave when I call your name, please. Leslie, wave hi. BJ Magnani, who is PhD, MD, FCAP, which will explain all of her degrees. S. Lee Manning. I'm supposed to call her Slee, which she says is her poker name. I hope that wasn't a secret because it's out now. And Ursula Wong. We're going to ask them for their take on the future of professional women, creativity, and technology, the impossible dream. And I am already going to say not even a chance. It's already here. So ladies, welcome to the show. Let's go around the table and have you introduce yourselves. I have BJ up first this time. So BJ, why don't you give us a quick introduction, remind our audience, you've been on before all of you on Tech Rev with me, remind everybody who you are, what you do, and a quick take on what it means to be a professional woman in STEM and to be creative. Welcome BJ. Hi Bonnie, thanks for having me back again on the show. Yep, so I'm B.J. Magnani, and I'm currently professor of anatomic and clinical pathology at Tufts University School of Medicine. I'm also chair of the College of American Pathologists Toxicology Committee. So just to give you a little bit about my background, I have a master's in environmental science and marine science, uh, where I worked on algal systems and pesticides effects on algal cells. 
I have a PhD uh, in pathology where I worked on the metabolism of cancer cells. After I finished my graduate work, I became a scientist. I worked as a scientist until I decided to go back to medical school because I wanted to get more clinically involved. So I went to medical school. I did a training program ultimately in pathology, and that's where I landed. Now, I'm also the co-editor of several reference books in toxicology. I am um, either author or co-author of over 100 scientific papers, abstracts, book chapters, uh, and my creative side, which includes the science, but has extended now into fiction writing, is I use all that scientific knowledge, and I've now written the Dr. Lily Robinson series, which started out as eight short stories uh, if, uh, that Lily, who is an assassin, who knows toxicology, and my books are The Queen of All Poisons, The Power of Poison, and coming out next year, A Message in Poison. Wow, PJ never ceases to amaze me. Your resume must be 18 pages long, and we're very impressed. And you you embody, as do the other ladies on the panel today, you embody what we're talking about is, is creativity possible and a knowledge of technology as well in a woman in STEM who is immersed in science and other professional fields. It, it doesn't seem very likely to probably a lot of our viewers and listeners, but here you are living proof. So thank you very much, BJ. Pleasure to have you back. Slee, I get to call you Slee. It's S period L-E-E. Her last name is Manning Esquire. We got that in there on the screen. By the way, everybody wave hello to LinkedIn. Everybody say hello, LinkedIn. Come on, everybody wave. Hello, LinkedIn. Hello, Facebook. There we go. Slee, you're up. Would you please reintroduce yourself to my audience? Tell them what have you been up to and what's your take on women and STEM and creativity? Slee. Well, let me just go through my background very uh, quickly. I started out actually in the writing field. I went to New- moved to New York to become an editor and writer, and I got tired of being poor, so I went to law school, um, became an attorney, worked at a firm <laughs> called Cravath Swain & Moore, which is one of the top three firms in the United States doing uh, uh, litigation with involving computers and um, various uh, large large litigations we were called we called we litigators were called gators at that point um, moved on to the Attorney General's office of New Jersey um, took a break when my, both my daughters were born and then became um, had my own practice for a while and also worked as a public defender. Um, all along, I've always been writing and um, the, the, the types of writing you have to do as a lawyer, the types of analysis, the types of work are very different, but you, but knowing, I, I wouldn't call myself a scientist, but, but for example, having a litigation involving uh, computers in an early, in the mid eighties, I had to learn about computers at that time. If you're a, if you're a litigator at one of those big firms, you need to learn uh, a lot. You may le- need to learn about whatever field it is you're litigating about. Um, and so I, I would say that I have, I'm sort of versed in both. And it's 
to be a good lawyer require does require quite a bit of uh, creativity um, and thinking outside the box. But it also it's a different kind. It's you can use that sort of creativity as a writer. Um, I didn't talk about my writing career. I have am the author of two published well. Trojan Horse, which was published last year, Nerve Attack, which is coming out in a month, and uh, my, I am currently working on the third in the series uh, called Bloody Soil. These are all spy thrillers that involve a Russian Jewish immigrant to the United States who works as a spy for American uh, intelligence. Wow, wow, wow. You are all, we've only talked to two of you so far. Impressive. I have a quick question for BJ and Slee. I'll ask the same thing for Leslie and Ursula. Leslie's up next. But ladies, has there ever considered a conflict of interest in your professional life and what you write as thriller novels, as fiction? BJ, is there ever, oh my goodness, your your heroine is a toxicologist, she, she understands this, poison, and here you're a doctor healing people, saving lives, and you're writing about poisoning. Does anybody ever say the nerve of you, <laughs> no pun intended, BJ? You, you know, it's a very good question, and, and it has come up before, but I originally started writing this series at the behest of the editor-in-chief of the journal Clinical Chemistry because they wanted something exciting and an exciting way to teach toxicology. So there you go. I mean, I was asked to do this and it turned into what it has now, which is now three novels, the third, as I mentioned, coming out next year. So thank you. Thank you for that. Slee, any any conflict of interest well, issues? Actually, to be honest, there is a slight conflict of interest. As lo along with my professional career, I was also chair of New Jerseyans for Alternatives to the Death Penalty, and I wrote the first draft of the legislation that abolished the death penalty in New Jersey. Um, and yet, I have a character who periodically kills people. And he's not an assassin, but he does, uh, if someone is shooting at him, he shoots back, and he's very good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have I have this conflict, and there is a lot of violence. There's a lot of death in my. So I have um, on one hand, I have this uh, thing where I I helped I actually helped abolish the death penalty in New Jersey, and yet I'm having characters killing and uh, fighting. <laughs> I tried to resolve it by having um, Kolya's girlfriend, and actually who becomes his fiance be uh, an anti-death penalty crusader. <laughs> but there is a little bit of a conflict, yes. Thank you. I hope the two of you don't mind my asking. Leslie Wheeler, you're up next. Leslie, welcome back also. We'd love to hear. Give us the full, the full tilt. What is your background in STEM? What do you do? Tell us about your books. And do you have any conflict of interest? Ursula, you're teed up. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Bonnie. You're welcome. Um, so, uh, I am somebody who always wanted to be a writer. It took me a while to get there. I um, did graduate work, uh, got a master's in English at UC Berkeley. Um, actually had a double major um, in English and history from Stanford because I've, um, history was also my second uh, big love. Um, and uh, But left graduate school because I wanted to uh, experience the real world, got a job teaching at um, a place called New York City Adult Training Center, uh, where I found myself, English uh, graduate student, teaching courses like 
refrigeration English and electrical <laughs> math. So I am working with students who are learning trades. Um, I have to figure out how I'm going to teach them the math they need to know. I also taught high school equivalency. And, um, you know, so I learned these formulas, which I have since forgotten. And um, anyway, I did eventually from there, I got a job uh, working for an educational publisher, um, wrote two um, nonfiction books, a lot of writing in the uh, educational field, uh, turned to mysteries because I like to make things up. You know, when I was <laughs> reading about um, uh, do, putting together a biography and letters, I kept thinking, I kept sort of reimagining uh, this woman's life. Well, what if she hadn't married this, this uh, man and so on? And so what if? And I think that what if is uh, it's important for writing, but asking that question is, is an important part of creativity in any field. You have to be able to imagine or you know think of at least think about different possibilities and that's what i'm able to do in in my fiction you try things out sometimes things work and sometimes they don't um i have never worked in stem um however i have a, my son is was i mean he was practically a stem baby it was it was obvious from the time he was in kindergarten, maybe even preschool, that he was going to uh, be, have a career um, in technology. Um, this, and this strong intellectual curiosity. And it's really through him um, that I could see uh, how his how creativity is, is important in STEM. Um, okay, I'm a writer. I deal with words. He writes codes that are uh, making things happen in a different way. Um, and so my books just really quickly, um, I have two series, Living History Mysteries, um, three titles in that, and the two titles, um, on the screen behind me or in my new series, uh, Berkshire Hilltown Mysteries set in the Berkshires um, and uh, Rattlesnake Hill and Shuntoll Road. And I, I use um, real life experiences that I've heard about or read about or even witnessed in my books. And from there, I take off. Thank you very much, Leslie. I love I love the part about you wrote refrigeration English. You taught that's uh, to me that's STEM. That's that's science. That's technology, right? You turn on a refrigerator, it's got electricity. You're you're a woman in STEM. Don't don't even doubt it. Nice to know about your son, but you are. By the way, I'm a, I'm an early coder from the 1970s. I won't tell you when. Uh, and and so I know. And I discovered that I could 
do English as well as I could do COBOL and PL1 and other languages. So I had that transformation of, oh, I can speak and write in English, not just in code. So there was was that trans transference, if you will. Ursula Wong, it's your turn. You've been so patient. Ursula, you're new to this group. These ladies, as I said, have been on, on several shows with me. And Ursula was on another show about self-published authors, self-publishing and the, the technology of where is it going a couple weeks ago. She's been on twice. Ursula, Let's have it. Who are you? What do you do? I know you have a background in engineering. Let's hear it and talk about your books. Ursula, welcome back. Bonnie, it's so great to be here. Um, I'm a novelist. I focus on historical fiction and thrillers, uh, starting with World War II, Eastern Europe, Russia, and I get into modern day political events and write about those two on a fictional basis. But it all started with um, a bachelor's degree in physics. I have a bachelor's degree in mathematics. I have a master's degree in applied mathematics. My first job was analyzing large-scale computer systems for the government. Then I went into the computer industry back in the day when there weren't (laughs) many applications. And sometimes you had to look at the values in machine registers to debug your code. Now, I told my 25-year-old daughter that story, and she was appalled that the computer industry uh, was so primitive at that point, but I speak truth. I went on to design large-scale computer systems, computer architectures, um, an email system that handles millions of messages per month, a um, terabyte file system, a identity and security system that Mm. figures out how I know you are who you say you are Uh, a surprisingly thorny question. I went on to um, do novels after doing all of that work for several decades. And while I focus on history in my fiction and Lithuania, my ancestral Lithuania and Russia and their relationship and their ongoing relationship, in looking back, I have a very important character in a number of my Amber War books, um, five of them, and she is Annie. Now, she is a computer program, AI, artificial intelligence-based. Annie is artificial intelligence-based, and she has the ability to learn from her mistakes. So she uh, has integrated face recognition. She has uh, integrated decryption facilities. So she goes from database to database on the internet, breaking in, learning more things, and she has evolved into be the most powerful anti-terrorism tool the world has ever seen. So Annie, my character, which is a software, piece of software, is my homage to this multi-decade career in computer science and technology. Ursula, I don't remember hearing that from you on the previous shows. That's fascinating. An AI character as the lead character and the heroine and the the good per the good guy, if you will. Wow, ladies, I, I never cease to be impressed by the four of you, no matter how I meet you in what context or what shows you're on. Such power, and I'm, I'm going to be the, I'll be the fifth wheel here because of my background in tech. And I'll tell you that I was, it was the 1970s, I'll admit it, and I needed something to do because I was a newly divorced mom with two kids living 3,000 miles from my family. 
And my parents sent me a bunch of brochures. And they said, well, you've already got a degree in psychology. And I said, I don't have time to go get a PhD. And I don't, I can't practice with a bachelor's. What am I going to do? I didn't want social work. And they sent me a stack of brochures. They were in New York. And one was, I don't know, dental hygienist. And one was uh, lab tech. And one was computer programmer. And what I did was, I mentioned this to a couple of my, my women friends. It was in Eugene, Oregon. And they said, we've got a community college. It's five miles and two, I didn't have a car, two bus rides away, go there. And I went to the college and I said, I want to take computer science because I need a job to support my children. And they said, the class is full, but here's the deal. Ladies, I think you'll get a kick out of this. The class is full, but stand in the back for the next two weeks. Within two weeks, most people will say, oh, this isn't for me. This is too hard. And there will be a seat for you. And I went for two weeks. I showed up after two weeks, the place was half empty. and They welcomed me. And I did two years. I earned two degrees. Two so my graduate school after a bachelor's was two associate of science degrees at a community college in Eugene, Oregon. When I was done, they hired me to run a statewide community college information system, Ursula. Right out of those two years. I didn't use a slide rule for my business statistics class. By the way, they let me apply all of my bachelor's credits to, to these degrees. I used pencil and paper and my brain with math because I, I was almost a math major. I was a psychology major, but math was a, a minor for me. And the men in the class of statistics were so mad because they were using slide rules to figure everything out. And I was just writing it down on pencil and paper and I aced the class and they said, who do you think you are? It was so antagonistic that a woman, a woman in tech had the nerve to become a woman who loved tech, had the nerve to become a woman in tech alongside them. And anyway, history goes on from there. But that was my humble beginning in tech. And I just, I have never regret, regretted a day of it. So I spoke COBOL and PL1 and other languages before I was able to really, well, I was still good in English, but before I turned to broadcasting and business writing. So there you go. Now we know who everybody on the panel is and are. Ladies, you've all graciously sent me a movie or a song quote and movie or TV character quote. Let's get started with favorite quotes, and we'll find out what this has to do with our topic. BJ, you're up first. BJ sent us a quote from Mr. Spock, played by the one and only late great Leonard Nimoy in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, 1991, American sci-fi film. And Spock is also quoting Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes in The Sign of the Four from 1890. How's that for history, Ursula? And here's the quote from BJ has selected this. An ancestor of mine maintained that if you eliminate the impossible, Whatever remains, however impossible, must be the solution. BJ, you have to untangle this for us. How does this relate to our topic today? Go ahead. Well, uh, yes. So that so Mr. Spock, who is entirely logical but creative at the same time, uh, is implying, if you will, that perhaps his ancestor was Sherlock Holmes, uh, a character, of course, created by author Conan Doyle. And the original quote is, when you've eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And I think that's the thing in science is that we look to sort out what's true, what's not true, and, um, and follow this very logical path. And, and I see that not only as a, in a scientist, but I see it also in creativity. When you're, when you're generating, as Leslie said, you're creating a story, you're using what you know, and you have this linear idea 
of where things go, um, you know, once you eliminate uh, the impossible, whatever remains is, you know, going to be the truth. So uh, I really embrace that. Uh, I used to have that quote on my office door and, uh, and, I, and I, I believe it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. That was a, a, not a tongue twister, but a, a, a mind twister. Let's go to Slee, S. Lee Manning's quote. She picked one from the iconic film, My Cousin Vinny, 1992 American comedy. The film deals with two young New Yorkers traveling through rural Alabama, arrested and put on trial for a murder they did not commit, and the comical defense attempts of their cousin, Vinny Gambini, a lawyer who just passed the bar exam after several unsuccessful tries. I have the whole scene here. Slee, do you want me to read the scene or just the quote? What do you prefer? You can just read this, the uh, Well, actually, I think you ought to read the whole scene because it really makes a difference. Okay, so Vinny is played by Joe Pesci, also a wonderful actor, comedian. He says, so, Mr. Tipton, how could it take you five minutes to cook your grits when it takes the entire grit-eating world 20 minutes? And Sam Tipton, played by, I don't know who this is, Maury Tipton, says, I don't know, I'm a fast cook. I guess. And Vinny says, I'm sorry, I was all the way over here. I couldn't hear you. Did you say you're a fast cook? That's it? Are we to believe that boiling water soaks into a grit faster in your kitchen than any place on the face of the earth? And Mr. Tipton says, I don't know. And Vinny says, well, here's the quote. Well, perhaps the laws of physics cease to exist on your stove. Okay, Slee, I murdered that one. Go ahead, rescue me. <laughs> All right. Well, here's here's the bottom line. My cousin Vinny is is exaggerated and funny, but it, it might be the best law uh, film that exists. There are lawyers, there are law schools who play it to teach cross-examination. And what it shows, what this particular quote shows you, by the way, is not only how you you undermine a witness, but the fact that the lawyer has to know a broad range of uh, of stuff. He has to know how fast it, it takes grits to cook to, to challenge him on how long he was actually cooking the grits. And it shows also that it's also this guy who we, everyone thinks is a schlub and kind of stupid, and suddenly, boom, you see how really smart and intelligent and creative he is. And and the guy who is there was another lawyer, which you don't see that he there's another lawyer who was supposedly the, you know, the better defense lawyer, and he he just says, are you? Sh he had gotten up and said, are you sure about how long it was? And the witness said, yeah, I'm sure. And he sat down. So it shows the uh, Vinny thinking outside the box, challenging with facts, um, bringing up now um, issues that make ultimately makes the witness change his story and i want to say one other thing about this movie that i absolutely love the smartest person in this whole movie is Mar the character played by marissa tomei yep. she and she is the one who blows away the the whole case by being an expert on cars so you had not only have the woman being the smartest one but her being an expert in the automobile industry to uh, to to prove that these two boys are innocent. So it's it's both a great woman uh, show and it's a great lawyer show, and I, that's why I love that quote. 
Thank you very much. The end of that line, as he said, were these magic grits? Did you buy them from the same guy Jack bought his beanstalk beans from? Okay. I just have to say this. No judge would let him get away with what he was doing, but it, it was funny. <laughs> it, it was, it was a gr- I remember where I saw it. I saw it in Oceanside, Long Island at the Oceanside Theater, whatever. I can almost tell you Long Beach Road, I think. I, it's coming to mind where I saw the movie and when. It was that memorable. We'll leave it at that. Thank you very much. Leslie Wheeler has picked a four-word quote, how dare you, and we love it. It's from Buzz Lightyear, voiced by Tim Allen. Such iconic actors here. 1995 American computer animated comedy film produced by Pixar Animation Studios, released by Walt Disney Pictures, featuring the music of Randy Newman. And I don't know if you know this, it was co-executive produced by Steve Jobs. Oh my goodness. Here's the quote. Everybody knows this. To infinity and beyond. Leslie Wheeler, what does this have to do with our topic? Go ahead. Okay, well, I chose this quote as a rallying cry for women thinking of entering STEM fields. Uh, Even though it's spoken by a male character and um, because to me, it suggests that since creativity is an unlimited resource, it's not restricted to men, uh, women can be creative as well. So the possibilities are endless, and that extends to women um, entering into STEM. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. All good quotes. And let's finish up the quote segment with Ursula Wong. And she sent us a quote, four words, also a forward quote. Isn't that interesting? Not for, also forward. It's from Annie, the Broadway musical. The song is Tomorrow, 1977. The original Broadway production opened in 77, ran for six years, setting a record for the Alvin Alvin Theater, now the Neil Simon Theater. I won't read any more, but very, very interesting. Loosely based on the comic strip Little Orphan Annie, written by James Whitcomb Riley. Okay, here we go. I love you tomorrow. I like that. Ursula, how does this relate to our topic? Go ahead. Well, I, I picked, I, well, I do hum that tune in my, <laughs> in my head a lot, <laughs> but I Love You Tomorrow, um, to me, expresses the optimism of technology, and it's the hope that things will get better in the future. Um, for instance, the polio vaccine, how many lives did that save? Transistors, what was the effect of that? It led to technologies which made computers small and commuters have permeated in most countries almost every aspect of our lives. So tomorrow brings tremendous number of possibilities. Um, and I, I think the, the, the anchoring point, um, the internet, you know, we use it every day, we're using it right now. It's a STEM technology. Very well put. Thank you. And and I think we all know that song very well, very, very well. And I have the lyrics here somewhere if I can just find it real fast. Uh, let me see where it was. Ursula, the sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that tomorrow there'll be sun. And the line where you picked is tomorrow, tomorrow. Sorry, off key. I love you tomorrow. You're always a day away. I think I had five keys changes in that. Forgive me. Ursula, beautiful quote. Thank you, ladies. Let's go to predictions. We've got less than a half hour left, and let's see where we're going with this topic. So first up, BJ Magnani, I picked your prediction number two. I put it in the chat for you, and you say the field of medicine 
is sometimes considered the art of medicine with quotes around to creative women and men look at what could be. More women will think outside the box. Take about two to three minutes, BJ, and I'm going to tee up a prediction from Slee next. Go ahead, BJ. Yeah, I I really think um, that the creativity applies to science. And I'm, I'm looking at this when I'm wearing my scientist hat. You think about the possibilities, what could be. And when you sit down to describe and create an experiment, you've got to lay out how you think it would go. You're going to envision what the results might be. I can't tell you how much fun I always had trying to create an experiment that might explain something. If I tag this molecule with this tag, where will it show up or what will it do? So again, it's a little bit of an art because it's like you're mixing things together, you're creating things. Um, and, you know, we always say the art of medicine because not all doctors agree on things and it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. So uh, definitely um, science is creative. We're looking forward at possibilities and we're trying to imagine uh, what could be and how things might work. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Let's go to prediction number two from Slee. Here we go. We will see more creative endeavors by professional women who are able to turn their considerable brain power, I like the way you put that, to areas outside their original sphere. Slee, talk to us. Well, I mean, just look at this panel. Uh, look, look at, um, I, I have to admit, I was talking to BJ the other day, and she told me she wrote her first book while she was chairman, chair of the medical department, her medical department. And I was just thinking, I wrote my books various times when I was, was not practicing law, but, but um, women who are intelligent and professional will, you know, will use their creativity outside whatever their professional um, sphere is, much like men have always done. And I think we're seeing more and more of that and with people like us here on this panel. And it's going to con- just get more and more as more young women, hopefully, will be going into professions. And as they want to expand and use and use their, use what they, they learn in their professions in other and more creative endeavors. Thank you very much. Very optimistic there. Leslie Wheeler, prediction number two. I believe that more professional women will enter the STEM fields along the same lines, physics, math, chemistry, engineering, technology, if they can be shown that creativity in STEM is the same as creativity in the arts. Leslie, predict how are we going to show that to them? Go ahead. Okay. Well, first I want to say that uh, in preparing for this um, discussion, since I don't work in STEM, in STEM, I reached out to uh, friends of mine who do. And I, it was a great experience. I got some really good responses. And um, so one of the responses, uh, well, actually I wanna mention since um, yeah. this is outside of uh, the, um, that field. This goes back to biology, but I was very interested. I interviewed uh, two doctors. Um, they were both primary care and family doctors, but um, it just, it's a way of showing that creativity takes um, many different forms. And I said, I asked them, so how do you feel that, do you feel your work is creative? 
if so, how? And they both said uh, um, because they have to come up uh, with creative um, ideas about how to deal with their patients' uh, medical issues. And if one thing doesn't work, you have to try something else. And then another part of it, which my primary care doctor emphasized, was you also have to come up with creative ways to encourage the patient to get the treatment they need. Um, and I, I thought that was very interesting. Um, the other, uh, another response that I got from a friend who's had a career as a, um, has a career as a physicist and in um, college um, uh, at administration that, you know, and she basically says it's creative that you have to imagine ideas in, in physics that have not been formulated before, build new methods to explore those ideas, suggest further experiments to open up new areas of knowledge, and connect disparate different ways of thinking. If it were not creative, it would not be innovative, publishable research. So it's like it's built into the field, creativity. And, um, and she, according to her, STEM is a fabulous area for doing creative, independent work um, through research, teaching, traveling, working with colleagues, and establishing your own mentoring uh, network. So I think really the more this, this kind of information gets out, I think uh, women uh, will be attracted to fields that, that uh, areas of STEM that are not attracting as many women as, let's say, um, the, according to the American, um, a, a study that was done by the American Association of University Women, um, uh, biology and chemistry are the fields that attract most women. The other ones a lot less. So we really need to get out the word from people working in these less, um, you know, where there aren't so many people working already, that this is creative. Thank you. And Leslie, I want to compliment you on your creativity in reaching out to people you know who are more in that field than you are and asking them for their input. I thank you. And I'd love to be introduced to some of them if they want to be on a future show. So there you go. Creativity begets creativity. Ursula Wong, prediction number one. This is interesting. Let's focus on the first example. She says, women in STEM fields will be instrumental in making cross-discipline collaboration the norm when seeking creative solutions to complex problems such as global warming. I'm going to stop there, Ursula. So talk to us. What do you see? Well, I don't want to say that men do one thing and women do another, but... <laughs> women do a lot of other things. <laughs> the, women, the women I know uh, have really natural abilities for communication and collaboration. I mean, it may not come out in the workplace, but it certainly comes out. And I think that that really is key to pulling together, um, you know, the elements of problem solving needed to tackle these massive 
uh, uh, earth impacting problems. So global warming, for example, and this is a very, very high level example, um, weather patterns, cameras on the space shuttle that are able to view cloud formations, um, uh, uh, statistics to say how much, how many, um, how much water, how many storms, uh, wind velocity and so forth, and to track this over potentially decades. Um, all of these aspects come into not only salt learning about a problem, which is key to solving a problem, but um, as we learn more about it and we apply our, you know, different communication skills to explain, especially to lay people, what global warming might be, how it might affect the average person. I mean, these are all very acute skills, but they're all different skills. And I think um, women just kind of gravitate toward pulling out these different aspects that are vital to really understanding these tremendously complex problems. Thank you very much, Ursula. That was our first round of predictions. I think we can squeeze in another round. We have 15 minutes left. Let's keep these brief. Uh, BJ, I'm looking at your prediction. Which one did I pick here? Prediction number three. Women who've been successful in STEM will stand up and be mentors. Leslie mentioned this in, in her comment a few minutes ago. Mentors to more women. Unfortunately, there is a paucity of women role models in the science fields. Oh, my goodness. BJ, what's the prediction? What are we going to do about this? Yeah, no, I am very passionate about this. I feel an obligation, a desire, and a joy in mentoring uh, younger women in the field. And remember, we're not just talking about what we can do in science and how creative we are, but quite frankly, we are still the ones who are having the babies. So how do you have a baby? How do you, you know, get all these graduate degrees? How do you uh, take care of patients and write novels and do all these things? So I make it a point to mentor medical students. Uh, I give talks at uh, the medical school and particularly try and encourage women. And when I was chair of the department, when I took over my department, there were no women full professors, only one associate professor. Okay, the rest were all assistant professors. So I made it part of my job to help guide those women into getting their promotions. How do they get their career on track? What do they need to do? So again, I feel it's very important that women who are successful set themselves out there to be mentors and be um, available to younger women. Thank you very much. Very important point. I'm glad you brought that up. Let's go to sleep. Prediction number three. This is interesting. You say gender will continue to decline in importance in terms of determining professional worth as well as creativity. Go ahead. Break the mold. Go forward. Leslie, tell us, what does this mean? Are, are you predicting this is really going to happen? Well, I, I'm just looking at I have... Uh, two children in the uh, young generation, one in, their, one in their 20s who identifies as gender non-binary. And you're seeing um, people not only 
the gender issue being a bi- as big a thing for people in that age. Rather, my older child is a, my daughter in California, but um, I think they they look at gender differently than we do, and they're they're not as they're not as fixed in their roles and fixed mm-hmm. in what women should do and men should do fixed in this whole idea of, you know, uh, women, men are the breadwinners and women are, are state raise the kids um, that a lot of us grew up with that kind of thing. And we had to fight against it to become a, the professionals that we are. I think they're, they're seeing it as sort of, you know, roles across the, 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 uh, spectrum that um men do things that women we used to consider womanly womanly and vice versa and i think that's i actually think that's great let them you know let let's just people just do what is good what that person can do and do well and as opposed to looking at at person a person's gender and saying this is you know you are going to be a uh, do such and such because you're a woman or a man there you go. Uh, respect for people on the basis of being a person with a brain, with a mind, with a heart. Oh, my goodness. What a revolutionary concept, Lee. Thank you very much. Your internet broke up, but we kept with you and you came back, and we're glad. We didn't, we didn't give up on you, so there. This may be a day of bad connectivity, but we're soldiering through. Soldiers, I've interviewed professional women in the military fascinating ladies. So there we go. Let's go to Leslie Wheeler, prediction number three. You say, I believe that in addition to creativity, education, uh, Slee, why don't you mute yourself again, dear? Doing that. Thank you, love. Okay. I believe that in addition to creative education, changes need to be made in the learning environment for girls and women from elementary school through college. I'm going to stop there. Leslie, take about three minutes and tell us where we're going with this, please. Okay, well, some of what I'm going to say comes from this American Association of University Women study, which I found very interesting. Some of it comes from um, people that I contacted. Um, from I'll start with the um, AAUW. Um, well, one one thing that it seemed like everybody that I contacted agreed that we have to start at an early age. We have to start like around, I don't know, between around 11, maybe even younger. And um, so we're talking about grade school and there are a lot of things that can be done. Show women um, uh, have book, write more books about women scientists. um, And uh, also just to give one of, one of the things that I found very interesting in this um, was, and also things like the AAUW study said that um, it's important for parents to tell girls that intelligence can expand with experience and learning. We can grow. So you may feel, oh, I'm, I'm so stupid, I don't get this. That can change. Um, you need to have your self-confidence built up. And they call that a, a growth mindset versus these negative stereotypes that, that women, of, of girls often have to deal with. And this was something I, the next thing was something that I felt was very interesting in that um, they find that they found that girls assess their math abilities 
lower than boys. They hold themselves to a higher standard. You know, that's where this, you can be better. Um, that their, their self-confidence, um, they need to be given more self-confidence. On the college and uh, university level, um, I think they need to make changes in, um, several people mentioned offering um, introductory courses in some of these fields. So you have an idea, it's not just conducting research, it's doing all these other things too. And you can find the specific area that is, that is really right for you. And, you know, and then of course, there's just this bias and they point out there is this double, double bind um, that for uh, people judge women to be less confident, competent in STEM, unless they're like standout successful. Um, so we need to get rid of that. And then, and that puts women in a double bind. If you stand out successful, um, that, that can, uh, that uh, people may, may accuse you of being, oh, you're not womanly. Um, we are still dealing, you know, still, we have to really uh, examine our biases. And, and even though we think we're not, we are. Absolutely. And if you want examples of that, watch some of the detective mysteries on TV. I've started to watch uh, Crime Parfait, which is Perfect Murders. And every two episodes, they switch the detective and the mentee, if you will, the person working with the detective, the younger one. And there is a woman who is right down from the, the hippie years. She is just a free spirit. She's got two husbands who live next door to each other. And she goes from the bed of one to the bed of the other, examining what she thinks is the who committed the crime and how she should solve it it's it's crazy the way she dresses but anyway the point is that the creativity of the women detectives in some of these vera vera stanhope uh which is yeah. an Anne cleaves novel i'm on season 10 and the wonderful brenda blethen is is phenomenal and talking about women there's another one i've started watching uh, candace renoir and she's a woman who took 10 years off from the police force it's in french with subtitles and she's back and they hate her they don't want to accept her the men don't want any and she has it a way of looking at a crime scene of a a potential person who committed a crime in a way from her life uh, as a woman, as a mother, as a female in the police. She sees things nobody else sees. They're yeah. bum rushing her out of the scene. And I just started watching it and it's fascinating. So talk about creativity and crime novels. There you go, ladies. Let's move on. We have time for Ursula prediction number four. This is interesting. You say, while many engineering problems are solved by applying a technology, I believe this is Ursula Wong talking that creativity will become accepted as the X factor needed to solve progressively more complex issues over time. Learning creativity, and I want you to talk about that, Ursula, will become part of college level programs and on the job training, for example, brainstorming techniques and communication skills. Let's talk about teaching and learning creativity. Ursula, you're up. Yeah, I think that um, any uh, uh, technology specialist who is involved with solving business problems has to think out of the box. Um, it, 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 it just becomes necessary at certain points. So the question is, can you teach creativity? And maybe that's very similar to analyzing creativity, analyzing curiosity. And 
I think that, um, you know, in certain ways, I mean, it's, it's redundant, but analyzing is a creative skill itself. So you apply a creative skill to teach a creative skill. But um, I think that formalizing this to some degree, I mean, certain people are inherently curious, certain people are inherently and naturally creative. So can you teach some of that? Can you break it down and make it useful so that people are able to apply a toolkit or a skill set to figuring out these massive problems that are plaguing us today? So brainstorming techniques, um, I, there are a few of them that we can read about. They've been around for you know decades. Are there more? Are there different ways to analyze? Are there different ways to think about problems? Spatial analysis, women, I hear, tend to be less, um, uh, uh, um, spatial analysis may not come naturally to, to many women, but I think that picturing things, picturing a coronavirus, it's very impactful. I think that communication skills, being able to figure out what, what to say that matters, that makes a difference, uh, you know, going through this forest and picking out the few trees, the few key pieces of information that either break a problem apart or convey the essence to somebody who can apply their unique analysis skills to finding this. So this is what I'm talking about. It's what we do in business. And I think that eventually I hope that it becomes part of real curricula so that um, people can leverage it, figure out what it means and not start from scratch all the time. Thank you. Thank you. When to say what matters. Oh, my goodness. Ursula, true for anybody and everybody. Pick your battles, pick your wars, think things through, think before acting, but say something impactful that matters. And sometimes that means thinking completely outside the box, right? It means going against the grain, against the tide and saying, I see it differently. Very, very interesting. We barely have enough time left, but I have one prediction from uh, BJ that I just want you to give one sentence to, and then we're going to close. You say, more women, she predicts, will rise up and claim what is rightfully ours. Gone will be the days when men take credits for our scientific achievements. BJ, one sentence, and then we're going to wrap. Go ahead. I don't know if I can do one sentence. but Two I can sentences. Take two. But I can tell you that I was a... Um, in the field where men took credit for our work, uh, men put their names on our papers, and now there's a whole bunch of regulations that have come out from that, and for the better. And I want women to be able to take credit as graduate students for the work they do. Thank you, thank you very much. We all want that as women in any field to take credit for the work you do, yes? Okay, ladies, I can't thank you enough, but I want you to say thank you to Aaron Keller, my engineer at Voice America. Say thank you, Aaron. Come on. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. There you go, Aaron, showing you some love. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. Thank you so much for watching. And ladies, I want you to put your right, whatever finger you wave, wag your finger. Come on, we have something to say here. Wag your finger. And the finger of somebody tells you the future is already here. You're going to say, no, no, no. That was yesterday's future. Today's future hasn't happened yet. And and we're all going to make it a better one. Bonnie D. Graham, thank you all. Have a good one. Be safe. Be savvy. Be happy. We'll see you next time on Technology Revolution, the future of now. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for joining us for Technology Revolution, the future of now. Mark your calendar to join host Bonnie D. Graham every Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel to hear how technology is impacting your future now.